Navi Raju, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. We're looking at innovation in India. I can see you hopping up and down as we're about to speak. But uh, 2010 to 2020, it's the decade of innovation in India. Um, Why now and why for such a long period of time, 10 years? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, 2020 is indeed going to be an important milestone for India for many reasons. Uh, The primary reason is that India is now entering a phase of what we call hypergrowth, which is similar to what China experienced in the late 90s. That means that after a lot of uh, false starts, now it seems like India is entering, you can call it on cruise speed, uh, growth phase. And this growth phase is going to be probably lasting for the next few decades. So this is the first decade of sustained growth that India is going to experience. And this growth, the question is, is it always going to be fueled? Is it going to be fueled like the China model uh, through brawn, like, you know, using low-cost manufacturing, or to brain, which is using, you know, scientific and technology capabilities? And our feeling is that the next decade in India, the growth of India in the next coming 10 years, will be powered by scientific and technological innovation. And therefore, it's going to be crucial for India to invest massively in innovation, whether it's a government investing in R&D labs or corporations investing in innovation, because innovation leads to growth. All economic theories, you know, confirm that. And therefore, the next decade for India will be very crucial because if these projections of growth were to bear, there needs to be innovation-led growth. And that means more investment in R&D and innovation. And in India, it's a particular type of innovation, isn't it? You call it Jugadi. Yes, uh, that's a great term. So Jugad is indeed the kind of innovation that takes place in India. And uh, Jugad essentially uh, is a gutsy kind of art um, of uh, creative improvisation that you see all across India. And essentially, it's the ability to make the most of limited resources to come up with frugal solutions that actually address a very specific socioeconomic need. And this kind of jugad you see across the board by entrepreneurs uh, in the streets who come up with creative ways to uh, sell products to the masses in India. But you also see jugad in play by co- in corporations, like, for example, the Tata Group, which has come up with uh, this very clever car, the Nano, which is an embodiment of jugad because it, uh, it basically uses limited resources, limited raw materials, to produce a car which only cost $2,500, but is available for the masses. So the Jugad essentially is the ability to do more for less for more. We'll come back to those companies later, but but India is also talking about a brain gain, not a brain drain. The scientists returning to India rather than the diaspora. Is that possible? It is indeed possible. And uh, let me share you some statistics. Um, The the numbers vary uh, depending on the source, but there are two statistics that are pretty telling or revealing. Uh, The first one is that if you look at uh, even 10 years ago, the so-called IITs, Indian Institute of Technology, which produced the cream of the cream of engineers in India, and when these students graduated from IITs in India, more than 90% of them, if not 100% of them, used to actually leave India for greener pasture in you know, U.S. or U.K. for further studies, higher studies. And then they will actually get settled there, become engineers and scientists in foreign companies. But now the numbers have dropped to less than 10%. That means that 90% of the graduates of IITs in India prefer to choose to stay home and work for local companies 
right? So suddenly that means that we have reduced the amount of brain drain that we experience as a country in India. The second statistics which is important is what is called the reverse phenomenon, which is, um, sorry, the returnees. Uh, that means that you have more and more uh, of these uh, bright Indians who got settled in the U.S. or U.K. are now returning back to India. And estimate roughly is about 60,000 of such, uh, you know, non-resident Indians have returned to India, and they are actually contributing more to the scientific and technology development of India. And, and th- so that return is incredibly important to you because they, get, they go out with one culture and come back uh, with another to provide local solutions to local problems. Absolutely. And that's why I think that uh, some people have been talking about this notion of uh, brain circulation as opposed to brain drain or reverse brain drain because brain circulation indeed implies that these um, Indian people who have worked and uh, lived abroad bring back not just scientific and technology knowledge, but also knowledge of other cultures. And as India becomes more integrated into global economy, you need to have these what I call uh, bicultural, multicultural type of Indian people who can act as a kind of bridge between the Indian society and the foreign societies. So these people who are returning are going to become what I call um, knowledge brokers or cultural brokers because they will provide these gateways between the Indian economy and the rest of the world. And so will they help uh, within those gateways, almost networks, you're saying, uh, uh, people, to solve the problems of the growth of India? Because however fast it's growing, it needs to grow more. And, and the urban-rural divide as well, because that's a big difference within India. Absolutely. So the urban-rural divide is going to be very important. As a matter of fact, uh, two points on that. Uh, one is that, the, coming back to your first part of the question, I do believe that these global innovation networks are going to be very important because India still needs foreign technology to further its growth. If you look in the energy space alone, India will need technology like nuclear technology, for example, will need energy technology around uh, solar technologies, the more advanced versions of solar technology. So these technologies have to come from abroad. And the U.S., uh, Germany, France, U.K., which are very rich in technology, and Russia as well, will contribute to that kind of, you know, um, uh, development of India by actually lending some of the technology. And therefore, these networks have to emerge so that India can gain access to these foreign markets and source technologies from these foreign markets. That's the first point. The divide you talked about, the urban areas and rural areas, are extremely, extremely important to bridge. Interestingly, unlike China, I must say, one of the interesting trends we see in India, actually we heard that even China now, is looking at India as a best practice, is that India has not experienced the kind of phenomenal um, uh, rule kind of uh, exodus you have seen in China. And that's because a lot of innovations in India today are happening in the rural areas. And, for example, if you look at in the area of energy, for example, a lot of solar energy now is being distributed to rural people. Right? If you look at, for example, technologies like uh, um, uh, in the retail business, a lot of the consumer uh, kind of um, uh, retailing is actually being extended to rural areas as well because rural areas, people think they are poor. They may be poor, but if you come up with the right business model to sell products that are affordable to the people in the rural areas, they're willing to buy for it. As a matter of fact, if you go in many rural areas in India, you will still find, you know, TV, you might find a motorbike, you might find people using, you know, even a fridge. So rural India is developing as well. And I think rural India, where 70% of Indians live, 
in my opinion, is going to become the next big market, both for Indian companies, but also for multinationals. So it's not going to go as the China model is, with that great divide between the, the town and the country? Absolutely. Not only, I think, the divide, uh, I think, will uh, eventually you know, uh, evaporate, which is great. But more importantly, I think what we're going to see in India is that the kind of the tempo, so to speak, for innovation will be given by rural population, which is fascinating because typically we think that a lot of innovation comes from urban areas. But in India, my feeling is that a lot of the affordable and um, uh, frugal innovations are going to be designed with the rural uh, masses in mind. And eventually, these innovations will find their way back into even cities and maybe possibly in other emerging markets and even in the West. Now, I know your prime minister has said that actually you need more private investment in the ecosystems of India. And of course, the global recession, India is being subject to it too. There's less money for for R&D. Is attracting investment into India problematic? Uh, I think uh, actually it's it's not entirely true. But if you look at the latest numbers, uh, I'm actually, uh, you know, I can go a single week without reading the news that of all emerging markets, India is now emerging as one of the top uh, locations for attracting all the top markets, which is attracting foreign investments. The point I'm making is that actually it seems like there is a more funding available now than ever before in India. Is, is it leaving the West because of the recession and going into India? It's exactly right, because what's happening is that you know, a lot of investors, because the fact is that if you look at it, right, there's a certain amount of capital available in the, market, in the global marketplace at any point in time. But this capital typically chases the, you know, the greatest opportunities, right? It's like the meteor. It always goes where the, you know, the next big opportunity is. And it seems today, to me at least, is that foreign investors have already pumped enough money into China. And they invest in factories, etc. So I think that that investment story of China is almost like a, you know, a past chapter of this book of global capitalism. I think the next chapter, which is being written now, is going to be written with India as the main protagonist. Because I see more and more foreign investors investing in India because we have so many greenfield industries, right? If you look at retail sector, it's completely, you know, open because there are no organized retail, you know, chains yet. If you look at healthcare, we have such a paucity of, you know, clinics and hospitals. If you look at education sector, my gosh, we are just getting started by liberalizing it, right? So it means that you will see a lot of opportunities for innovation growth across all these sectors that are already relatively developed in China, but are completely in its, you know, the infancy in, in India. If we then have a look at some of the success stories w- within India, and I know there was an article in the Financial Times uh, in January about that, but the General Electric, Cisco, Pepsi, Cola, those enlightened Western fir- firms who have embraced your concept, Navi, of polycentric innovation. What is it and why is it the way forward? It's a very interesting and important question. So polycentric innovation is the opposite of ethnocentric innovation. So if you look at companies like G, PepsiCo, and uh, Cisco, etc., traditionally what happened is that most of the innovation used to be done in the U.S. And the underlying premise for doing that was that, well, U.S. engineers were the smartest in the world because basically they know how to understand the U.S. market. Therefore, they were best positioned to develop the best products in the world. But what's happening now is that that's true, that may still be true, but what happens is that the fastest growing markets now are not in the U.S. or Europe. They are now in India or China. Therefore, you need to basically have more R&D localized 
in countries like India, so you can develop locally relevant products and services. So companies like G, Cisco, and uh, PepsiCo, they are now moving more R&D responsibilities into India. And they are not just developing Indian products for the Indian market anymore, but they're also delegating more management responsibilities to the Indian teams. So what that means is that they are, pre- they are creating new centers of excellence in India and China that will allow, for example, in the case of Cisco, to have a senior manager in sitting in Bangalore to call the shots as to what products and services will be rolled out globally. Right? So this kind of having global responsibilities located in a country like India, in an emerging market, is something that never happened before because most of the power used to reside in their quarters you know, in New York or in San Francisco or in London. But with polycentric innovation, companies like PepsiCo and Cisco, they are trying to essentially distribute and dilute uh, the decision-making power on a global scale. And, and that is the way forward, and it won't then affect India's external drive by the fact that the energy is going internally now. That's exactly right. I think that if the more we kind of uh, provide this kind of uh, capabilities within India, because I think that India has always been looking for validation from abroad, <laughs> but I think that we are coming to a point where I think India is gaining more in self-confidence, and the fact that we have 1.15 billion consumers is going to be the biggest asset India had. So India has two assets on play today, right? One is a large consumer base, and the second thing is a large talent pool. So now realizes that if it can marshal these two assets to propel its growth you know, in coming decades, it can emerge as a knowledge superpower very quickly. But it does need, uh, to some extent, partnerships and collaboration with you know, multinationals who recognize the potential of India and want to help it grow. So as well as it being a 10-year decade of innovation in India from 2010 to 2020, it's also the polycentric innovation decade. Absolutely. I always say that, you know, there is, as you know, the famous saying is that, you know, anybody who comes to visit India uh, eventually ends up uh, being completely transformed. Uh, And I think the same is going to apply for multinationals as they enter India and set business there, open labs, etc., you're going to see that multinational themselves are going to organizationally come out completely transformed. And indeed, I think that the multinationals of 2020, I would claim, will be polycentric organizations that are shaped by the experience in India. Uh, Navi Raju, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. I've learned so much. Thank you so much, Bonnie.